having your PhD initially is is actually like not a great thing. It's not a good look because you're overeducated. You might be overqualified. They're like, why don't you want to stay and be a professor? Like I know those folks do. And you have no real experience in this role that you're about to apply for. Like none of this makes sense, especially humanities and doubly, especially for philosophy, like philosophy to whatever it makes no sense. And there's this infinite space between zero and one of like not having the job ever and having your first job. Once you get the first one, everything makes sense. You're like, wait, a company has given you benefits and a salary and has employed you. You've done the work and now you like can go on to do other things, right? Like it, you make sense to people once you've done a job that they're like, you know, LinkedIn posts for and things like that, right? Um, but until then, it doesn't make sense. But then once you've got the job, you've got a few years of experience under your belt. Oh, also he has a PhD in philosophy. I want to talk to this person because like they're probably a little bit tweaked or there's something else going on there that is like atypical or you have sort of an atypical background for that. That's So it works in your favor afterwards. But until then, it, it's one of those things you really have to downplay. You've got to like really chill out on the like being an academic and, and you have to really be very humble and search for entry level positions to learn what you're trying to do and not say like, look, I have my PhD. I'm not going to be a... Uh, like you, you got to really like put the ego aside here and say, I know nothing about this industry. Hi, Aaron. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. Yourself? I'm doing all right. Thanks. Can you just share where you're uh, hailing from? Sure. I'm, I'm hailing from today what is not so sunny Southern California. I'm in L.A. Um, <laughs> on, on the west side of L.A. around, uh, around Venice. Right. Venice Beach. So this is a very long distance one today. I'm here in Montreal, Canada. <laughs> Super happy to be here with you today because I come from the STEM side of things. Uh, most of my guests in the first seasons of Papa PhD were people who had been on the bench beside me or in you know, neighboring yeah. labs doing different biology, cell biology, neuroscience experiments, but having someone from social sciences and in your case, from, you know, from philosophy, which is, it's something I haven't talked about at all on the podcast. And um, this PhD planet has a lot of continents and I'd, I'd love when a new one appears and we're able to learn about it. So this is why yeah. I'm super, super, when you reached out, I was super, super happy and I'm glad that we're yeah. here today. No, I like what you're doing here, and I'm glad, um, happy to have been invited. I appreciate that. I think if we're philosophers, maybe are like the Australian continent of of the planet of PhDs. <laughs> like we're way off, we don't make sense, and we're probably a bunch of you know uh, folks who were were on the what is it? A bunch of criminals <laughs> founded by that. I don't think philosophers are criminals, but I think we we're we've got a very skewed perspective on things, uh, which is is good and bad yeah. in many ways. And the, the funny thing is that you used to be, you know, the bee's knees in terms of knowledge, and you know, and and PhD. There's there's you're in every PhD. There's a philosophical you know doctor, or I don't know the exact yeah. Latin, but it, it is um, it is something that. Uh, I can't say I have nostalgia for it because I, I didn't live in that era, but like, and this is off topic for the, the interview, but my father was, uh, before he left the organization, was a, um, he went to a seminary and uh, he was, you know, he, he studied philosophy in seminary and, um, and maybe through him, I got this uh, idea that it would be good if philosophy became something less Australia <laughs> and more <laughs> and more uh, yeah. center to everything we do today because the problems that we're faced with as a planet and as a as a, a species I think mm -hmm. there's a lot of reflecting and thinking and not just doing and creating yeah. uh, and, and and building so anyway I, I I have a lot of respect for for the domain but a lot of curiosity because as much as uh, you know, I have like, like I'm saying, I have this idea that there was a time where uh, science, the approach to science was very different. The approach to classical teaching, you know, yeah. and what was important was very, very different. Uh, you know, and I'm thinking about music and its relationship to maths and, and whatever. And today yeah. we've become so, I guess, industrialized and it, and it became passé and it doesn't make sense to me anyway. Sorry for that little rant. Yeah, no, I mean it, it's not it's not outside the the realm of like what philosophy 
was and and is there's there's definitely an extent to which you know a this to be called natural scientists were like natural philosophers mm-hmm. right that was that was a good, that was a good yeah, thing yeah. and i think when you get when you get the beginning or the end of any like scientific method or any methodology you're doing philosophy because like you're not quite sure what the agreed upon method is and then when you're pushing the bounds of a methodology and you're not sure like i'm trying to study this consciousness thing and i've only studied the brain in this particular way am i really measuring what i'm setting out to measure or like how do i really do that right then you have to start talking about the the greek and german guys right <laughs> yeah. like that's, that's kind of where we we come in and there's all these different varieties w- within that as well so yeah natural i mean it would be cool if we were all natural philosophers or something like yeah. that and the degree is also redundant right like like doctor philosophy neuroscience doctor philosophy philosophy is you know yeah. extra double yeah double word score for that exactly. did you any have anything any questions before we start i'm just going to throw out the corporate disclaimer that like i'm speaking on behalf of myself i'm not speaking on behalf of google today my opinions are my own not the views of my employer sorry you're just going to hear about me in my my regular old old life i can talk about you know some some stuff but i'm not doing it on behalf of the company this is this is a aaron an aaron led endeavor awesome that's perfect that's well and to to uh, keep on that track i'm going to present you uh very quickly this week i have the great pleasure of having with me aaron kagan aaron received his phd in philosophy from fordham university in 2017 he is today a staff user experience researcher at google working on human choice and sits on the american philosophical association's committee for non-academic careers he has seven plus years of experience in the tech industry holding positions at google Meta Reality Labs, Loon, and Native Instruments. Aaron has published journal articles on embodiment, emotion, and inactive perception, and he is currently writing a book for Rutledge on the embodied mind. He's a passionate advocate of societal relevance of philosophy and has written, presented, and spoken to undergraduate and generalist audience about applying philosophical skills in non-academic sectors and that's what we're going to talk about today welcome to papa phd aaron thank you happy to be here super super happy so uh you've already given your disclaimer today it's aaron talking yes you work at google but this is these are two separate things um of course it's super interesting to to mention the fact that you work at, at google because i think it's in part one of the curiosities that arose when when we talked was what does a philosopher do at google what does a philosopher do in the tech do, you know in the tech space at all so uh maybe for sure we're going to talk about that but uh to start i wonder whether you have you know one or two other uh you know brush strokes to uh, to add to the the very quick uh, portrait that i shared of you as a human sure. Let's see. Um, yeah, lived uh, lived in New York for most of my life. Uh, have been in LA for about six years, and was in um, was in like consulting uh, firms and things like that initially before I jumped into some larger uh, like one specific product center type uh, type situations. Um, avid surfer. I lived a double life for a long time as a as a DJ and music producer in New York, and that's how I funded most of my PhD. And got through that, which was actually very weirdly helpful um, to get me out of academia. And um, yeah, it's probably other stuff you can't glean from my typical like write up or, or LinkedIn. Awesome, awesome, very very cool. Question, just because you you know we mentioned Native Instruments, was your DJing did it have anything to do with you landing a job at Native Instruments? That, that one's funny because initially it didn't, and then it really did. Oh. So I, I got it. They used to, they used to give me free stuff back in the day when, like, I was I was DJing in these clubs in New York and like touring and stuff like that. But uh, when they reached out to me for a UX researcher role, um, it was just like straight up, like, okay, based on your experience or blah 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 blah. It was just a straight up thing. Jumped into the interview. And they started talking like, do you have any experience with this stuff? Do you know what this is? And I was like, well, actually, <laughs> like, just give me stuff. Is so-and-so still work there? And it was immediately like, oh, wow, this guy is, uh, um, you know, very well suited for this role. So that was That's uh, amazing. That was interesting. And I thought I th- at the time, I thought it was like the ultimate like DJ retirement job, <laughs> getting getting something at that and then and then moving moving along through there. Um, but uh, 
yeah, so that that it did help me later on. And then like doing the actual work was super helpful because I knew that user base, know the, the needs of the like primary user types and uh, was helping with like design and able to get to different um, access different kinds of users pretty quickly so that we could get feedback and testing on, on different sorts of products mm-hmm. pretty quick. So yeah, you were you already had knowledge, like inside knowledge of what their product, uh, not all of them, but what of what their products did and, and what most of them did. That, that's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's esoteric unless you work in that industry. <laughs> yeah, <you have> exactly. <laughs> Actually, my first ever like like buff like buffier uh, sound interface was a native instrument. So it's just oh no. <laughs> In any case, like let's stop uh, doing uh, ads for an <laughs> eye. Yeah, right. <laughs> but uh, anyway, it's it's super interesting to hear that, and uh, it's it's really cool to see how serendipity does play a role in in certain important steps in our life. But uh, sure. now, so I talked about my this kind of nostalgic. I don't know if it's the right term, but anyway, view of mine of mm-hmm. you know classic education. And and the larger importance of and you mentioned like natural philosophers, but larger importance uh, of philosophy in in, in mainstream uh, life, you know, in everyday life and in everyday decisions. And um, maybe one a place I'd like to go would be um, before we go to how you you got into what you do today was how you got to become a philosopher and and how you got to decide to go to graduate school can can you just talk about that a little bit no it's a, it's a great question because like doing a doing a phd is already pretty perverse and an extreme thing as you know um doing one in philosophy is doubly <laughs> weird and and yeah not not to say that we're special in that way but we're even more weirdly unsuited for the rest <laughs> of the world for lack of a better term uh, especially for the working world. Uh, I think what got me into it was I was in undergrad and I was initially like a sociology major. And then I didn't like the answers I got. No offense to sociology, but it just wasn't enough for me. Then I was psych. And I remember like distinctly being a little too, like there's just, it just wasn't doing it for me. I was like pursuing different kinds of truth and 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 wanted a bit more like harder facts about what it is to be in this world and to be a human. And like, then I started taking these philosophy classes and I was like, Oh, this is pretty cool. I'm not quite sure, but I was like, just curious about like life and what it is to be in the world. And uh, I'd always been cutting it with, uh, with science, with the hard sciences, but I wasn't trying to do both of those things. I don't think I ever could have passed organic chemistry too. So that was terrifying for me. And um, I was doing the science via philosophy. So I was really interested in, in, like what it is to be conscious and the sort of big questions of what it is to have a mind or how to live in the world. And I fortunately was in a program I didn't even know at, at Stony Brook as an undergrad that has a very strong philosophy department, took some amazing courses that really like changed my perspective on like what like thought is and what like Western, like the canon of Western thought has been. And then got super into like this stuff about perception and the mind and experience and like how, how do like, a bunch of atoms floating around in a void, like give rise to this sort of very, um, you know, very real subjective experiences we all have as individuals. That was just like a wild question to me. And the fact that anyone had made inroads in that was, was amazing. So I'd always been sort of like trying to, to do both. So I was doing psych and philosophy, undergrad, double major. And then I noticed it, uh, like I was fortunate to have really good mentors at the time. And, um, they put me on to kind of like a subgenre of philosophy, if you will, because there's all sorts of different kinds that really saw the neurosciences and cognitive sciences as mutually enlightening with philosophy. So like, hey, the dead German Greek guys have been talking about consciousness and perception for a long time. But guess what? We also know these things were like, if you knock out this part of the brain, this is just gone. doesn't matter what your theory is. And that can be very interesting and we can, we can mutually inform one another. It's not an antagonistic relationship, even though that example kind of is, but um, like it typically is something that we're like can help one another out with. And there's a growing uh, uh, like subgenre, I guess, if you will, of folks that really were interested in this embodiment stuff and have been making a lot of traction doing like different kinds of therapies and working with different people. And we learn about like what our experience is constituted by and how we are embodied beings and like what we are to be organisms in the world was pretty rad. And I was like, oh, this is super cool. I want to do this for the rest of my life. Like, this is it. Mm-hmm. And I had a couple other folks who, you know, were in a similar boat. And we were like, this This is it. Want to, want to stay in school forever. Want to teach. I want to do the thing. And then I was very 
keen on going to one particular graduate program that like specialized in neurophilosophy. And um, my GRE score sucked basically. And I thought it was a shoe and I didn't apply anywhere else. And I was like, didn't get in. I was, I was just devastated. Yeah. It turns out they do, they do these shitty things where they like, they stack you based on your GRE scores. And then like, they don't even get halfway through the first pile of the top tier ones. They've already got a million qualified candidates for like a handful of roles, right? I'm sure that's how it goes for a lot of yeah. people. And they say you're not supposed to do it. So I didn't even get looked at. And I was like, oh man, like I was devastated. And at the last minute, uh, a family friend was like, why don't you do the MA at Fordham? You're having a good time in New York. You're making good money, like with this music stuff and like you have a good life there. Then you can figure out like, where you want to do the PhD afterwards. And I jumped into the MA at Fordham um, and was like, okay, this is this is really interesting. I'm getting this very larger Jesuit style scholasticism that's getting sort of imparted onto me. And it's really interesting. It's got, you know, pros and its cons, but it was cool. And I would just sort of was like rolling it with it from there. And after that, I was like, okay, let me apply to a PhD program. But my life had taken a, a development, a maturity. It wasn't maybe just me getting old, but like I had a very, a pretty decent revenue stream with DJ. Mm-hmm. I met someone who I've now been with for like 15 years. So I, th- I think it's working out pretty well so far. And um, I didn't want to make a move. I was like, if I go to a graduate, different graduate program for the PhD, I'm going to have to uproot my life just for this one element of my life. And like, yeah, we self-define, yeah, we put so much into it, but there's a little bit more than yeah. that. And I was like, well, if I do the PhD at Fordham, I've got a bunch of other universities around. So I can, they have like a consortium with like Columbia, NYU, whatever, I take classes there. There's a very uh, strong, uh, what's called phenomenology, uh, a phenomenologist, which is like the study of, of experience proper um, and subjectivity. There's a guy there that could be my advisor. This, this, could, this could work, mm-hmm. right? So I went and I, and I did it. I did it through that basically. Okay. And um that's what sort of brought me into it. And I was, I was just really interested in this stuff at the time and a very specific subgenre, this, this inactive perception stuff and this uh, embodiment stuff, which I still am into and, and I'm writing about. So it's, it's certainly, I haven't let that strain go because I really do. I'm, I'm still really into it. I think it's right for, first of all. And, and I, and I think it's, it's something that um, is, has value to organizations and to the mm-hmm. world. So uh, I'm still like, I still dig it. Well, I have, I have a, a bunch of questions, uh, but I really like the fact that you mentioned um, this this uh, moment where you reflected, you know, on these questions of, of am I going to uproot my life to just get this degree? And you decided, you know what? Let's look around and and what uh, what I have at hand and and find and see if there's a solution there for me. And clearly, there was, and you could find collaborations, and and there was this consortium. And I think it's someone. It's something that uh, that people considering graduate school, or uh, anyway, at the end of graduate school, you know, should I do uproot my life also and do a postdoc to postdocs? Um, you, your your relationships, your uh, your life journey is of of the utmost importance to you, and you need to reflect on it and uh, and be sure that when you make these moves, you're not uh, setting yourself up for failure. By distancing yourself from loved ones, be it family or or uh, relationships, like you mentioned, I, I really like that you that you mentioned that because I think it's important. And people sometimes just follow, you know, they go through the moves and then do the next thing, and then eventually they look, they find themselves six thousand miles from their best friend and and thinking, what am I doing here? Anyway, it's, it's a, a part. No, it's, it's true. It's, it's easy for me to say this in retrospect. I'm sure if you talked to me at the time, I was an absolute mess. And if you had given me, if someone had come to me and say, look, here's a free ride to like whatever school you want. Like I probably would have taken mm-hmm. it to be honest, but I was like, I took the Jerry's again. I did worse because I was so like neurotic and, and put too much on it. And I was just trying to be realistic with certain things. And it's like, you know, there, there's one sense in which it's amazing to be a diehard and like put all your eggs in one basket. And this is what I want to do. And I'm certain of it. I respect that. And I think that's, that's like one, one way to do it. I don't think there's one right way to, but there's also the realization that there's other things going on in your life. And there always will Mm -hmm. be like, no matter how hyper-specialized you are and how niche you are, you still got to pay your taxes and pay rent and all those other things, right. The, The not fun stuff that outside of the ivory tower and you'd hopefully have relationships with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't be hermits as much as we want to be that as scholars. Sometimes like we're, we're social creatures by nature. Yeah. And those relationships are much more important than, than you'd think. Yeah. And at the same time, if I had stayed and, and didn't go for that, that dream in the, the academic sector and things didn't work out in the relationship, would I, would I be 
resentful or any of that sort of stuff. You never know, right? It's it's one of those things where like you have to just go through it and it's going to be your journey and you'll have your own kind of like path that you need to carve. But if you make the decision yourself, you can be happy. You know, you, you'll ultimately end up being happy with it. If you feel like you're getting strung along, then you know it's uh, nobody wins. Exactly. <laughs> now, the the question that I that I uh, the first question that I want to ask is throughout this um, going through your passion for different questions uh, in in the domain that you were studying. Did anyone around you, and I'm thinking of you know professors, uh, I don't know other mentors that you might have had. Was there any conversation about, okay, come study this and and you'll see the job market will need you in this and that space? W- mm. Was it something that was part of your journey through through all that learning, or did it come later on or at by the end of your studies that you looked around and said, okay, what do I do with this degree now? Yeah, um, let me sum it up with one anecdote. I, I go all the way to the end. I do the 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 defense. I've got everybody around me. You know, they're they're breaking me over the coals for like an hour or so. You get you leave the room. They deliberate, and you're like, oh my god, did, is this all for whatever? You know, my advisor comes out of the room, says, "Congrats, Dr. Kagan." Blah blah blah. Everyone's like, "Yay!" We're shaking hands and figuring out the next move, whatever. Then he says to me, "So have you considered like any jobs afterwards? You considered going for any positions afterwards?" And I was. I was speechless because I was like, bro, where has this been for 10 years? I had to apply for an extension because I was, I was doing other stuff. Oh like I've God. known you for over 10 years and this is the first time we've talked about it, yeah. like straight up. And, and so it, I think, I think that's what's part of like why I've really started to do this work with the APA and started like mentoring and, and, and trying to put together different kinds of toolkits specifically for philosophers. Cause yeah, there's a lot of, of ink that's been spilled and a lot of talk about leaving academia with a graduate degree. Cool. That's great. I think we still need to pursue those. They can still get better. I've seen very little specifically for philosophers. And because like I said before, philosophers are perverse and even less suited for the rest of the outside world. I think in that way, they're special or special. There's, there's, there were no, at least in my program, zero resources for us about any of this kind of thing. I came back like six years later or four or five years later and gave a talk like a little bit, but th- I've been working with a couple of universities um, in the U.S. and, and just outside and, and over in Europe about what kinds of programs we could potentially, or courses we could potentially put together to help folks understand the application. So this was like all on my own kind of a thing. I really was just, you know, uh, didn't have any help at all. And that was that was like devastating. But by the time I had finished, I had already, maybe the last two years was when I was making that transition doing a lot of the sweat equity work after I'd done the sort of existential, what do I want to do? And like, how am I going to make this work? Blah, blah, blah. There's all that stuff within the journey. But I had just started to get, I think it was the year, maybe a year and a half after my first like big kid full-time job, I was in a second agency in LA and I had to fly out for the defense that I was like, um, okay, like I, I, I'm going to finish this thing. But I do have a job and I have a career path because I know this isn't going to be the case. But it was one every every year was more was another process or, or layer of disenchantment with like I was seeing guys not getting jobs that were much more prolific than me, published books, great teaching recommendations, really strong like application packets. They were applying to like 75 jobs, hearing back from three to four right. and then maybe getting one on site. And it was for some, you know random university in the middle of nowhere that they'd probably be teaching ethics for the rest of their life. And again, for some people that might be great for, for me, that didn't really fit with where I was going. My wife's career was, was skyrocketing. And I'm like, why would I have uproot my whole, me myself and, and our, our French bulldog? Like, why would we uproot to go do that for this job that is going to pay a lot less that I won't be as satisfied with? Cause I was more interested in new ideas and in, um, specific projects collaborating with scientists and things like that. So it was either get one of those sorts of jobs or apply to one of these think tanks or specialized interdisciplinary positions in the EU on a two to three year grant. And folks that I knew in those positions were even smarter and were like amazing to me. And every two to three years, they didn't know where their check was coming from. And I was like, I didn't work this hard to, to not have that. Like granted there's instability with any employment, any form of employment, but like, this seemed really extreme to me yeah. and, and there just were so many folks and the job market numbers, I, I stopped looking at them like a few years ago because they're just, they were so abysmal mm. and they're only been getting worse. The, the saturation for 
philosophy philosophy positions at universities is just um you know it's just abysmal so it, it like i didn't even didn't even bother when i saw what was uh, what was of worth course. that so i said okay i gotta i gotta figure out something else but i also <laughs> want to be happy uh so yeah that was kind of yeah. where it went so that, that story about the question coming at after defense is so telling of and <laughs> and like you say i understand what you mean with it's even more extreme with philosophy PhDs because we don't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's very telling of the situation, uh, the situation, the, the global situation for graduate students. This, this is one of the things I think we're struggling with too, with um, the university and even with like the, the APA for lack of a better term, like this is an, ad, for some folks, they look at this as an admission of failure for some institutions. And I'm like, look, even if you want to be like hard nosed, Uh, uh, capitalists and and like very um, uh, um, uh, self-interested. What if you got philosophers' jobs that weren't teaching positions? Then you could say you have a hundred percent hiring rate afterwards. <laughs> Look at how great your program is. So even if you want to do it from a completely self-centered, like you know, self-aggrandizing way, I don't understand what the rub is. But from what from what I'm learning is that for a lot of folks, not just the students, but for the professors, it's an admission of like can't do it weren't able to, to like to get through that stuff despite it being an impossible job market and they're like why would they devote additional resources so like why would you take away from my time reading Kant to tell me about how to write a resume mm -hmm. I basically would be like the, the clickbait version of, of this <laughs> this this discussion right and I don't know where where that balance lies but the fact that there's no resources or like maybe one very thoughtful and caring faculty member shoots uh, in a group email a bunch of links and maybe starts like a working group around it that's still infinitely more than than what other folks have, have gotten at least in philosophy mm -hmm. but that's a start but they're not really incentivized to do that and i wish there was a way to make folks incentivized to do it and and do it in a way that is like look we're doing this for the good of our students and not complete self-interest of saying we crank out nothing but professors mm -hmm, yeah. and, and that's what we do. There are already a few institutions that do that. And that's where most of the jobs go to. So for every other university, which is like 95% of them that do that have philosophy programs, like it would be great if we really cared about our students in a, in, in the holistic way, not just making them good philosophers, but making sure they can live a good life after devoting yeah. so much time and money yeah. and, and of their life into that. Yeah. And again, a lot of questions uh, arise um, the first question is how is it um, how's the the landscape for uh, philosophy graduate students in terms of getting scholarships and because you talked about funding your studies with the yep. work you were doing uh, can yeah. you talk can you just give us the landscape very really really quick I just want to see how unfair this is what the extent of the unfairness is. Do you, mean, do you mean you want to start with the student debt, or do you want to start with like the post the post grad well, stuff? Uh, when you're in graduate school as a philosophy PhD student, how many what percentage of people gets gets uh, 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 money that is enough to pay all their yeah. bills? Funny. So most most programs, most strong ones, will not admit you unless you're you've got some form of funding, right? They're going to give you some kind of money. There's plenty that don't, and you take out a bunch of student loans. My master's was not funded. Okay. But that's because it was just for the MA students. The PhDs, they typically didn't want to keep on with that. So you often get like um, teaching fellowships. So you teach the sort of one-on-one intro-level courses that none of the tenure professors like want to be bothered doing. And it's a good gig. You get the teaching experience. You get to learn through that. Um, but those stipends, especially in like a city like New York, other places, it's nothing. Like it's barely enough to get by. And you know what, like, that's, that's just what, what that is. There's, 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 you know, levels to all that sort of stuff. But I know a lot of other people who moonlighted, did other jobs, uh, like doubled up their teaching at different universities or online teaching just to try to get a little more money. But again, that's more time away from, from a lot of that. And it's, it's a question of like, how many people can we admit and, and afford to sort of sponsor and support? And how many people can, are we going to say no to, or do like something halfway in between? And then there's straight up, like, like, I'm sure you're familiar with like, Uh, external funding from like like National Science Foundation type stuff that that's similar than the humanities, like one-off type programs for like a year okay. or summer fellowships. Like I got a couple summer fellowships one time to go to a place and do a thing, but again, very minimal. It's not none of this is lavish, but that's okay. It doesn't need to be, but it needs to at least be like living some sort of uh, uh, like a decent level of of existence mm -hmm. and not having to like like just really really scrapped to, to, to live a, to live a, an okay life. So th this 
to me, what it says is, uh, and I think it's systemic to to the graduate school system, and is, is that the there's for the for now it seems like there's this precarity, this systemic precarity of people who are in graduate school where you have you're going to graduate school, okay, I can pay my bills, but they're not offering you and uh, the security of I'm taking I'm not working on my career like the people who let's say who went to work after yeah. uh after their undergrad or after their masters I'm not doing that I'm keeping you know working at university as a young researcher and I'm putting that off and they're not offering you the security of after being sure that you can be on par with everyone else and mm-hmm. and have a kind of a guarantee of a financial uh, of a healthy financial uh, life yeah. afterwards plus they're not they're also not having the conversations that can help you have a good transition so it's it's a lose lose yeah. from what you're saying but and i think it's particularly bad in the humanities right where you got med school you got law school this that's a whole different gang so i want to like make the qualifiers there for some of those and and certain certain realms of like computer science and um and math and th- those kinds of things like there there are natural continuations into industry or into academia so you have the best of both worlds in the, in that particular case if you want to stay and teach cool if you want to go out make a ton more money and and do something in industry cool that's totally fine but you don't have that typically with most humanities degrees you definitely don't have that with with philosophy. even for life sciences you know there's even there's even possibilities of doing a, a graduate program where you go you work with industry there's 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 so many easy easier paths to to an, an uh, a private sector job from from that in, in those domains not so much in the humanities but that's where i'm super curious to ask you the next question so when i presented you you've not worked with one two you've worked with four tech related companies uh wow. since right Lu- well, it's, it's a bunch i mean maybe more so my question to you is they need you these these companies when they when they found when you you know you do your pitch of yourself when you you know you send your resume you 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 talk about what you can bring to the their team they say okay yes we're hiring you and my question to you is what do what do you think has uh uh has made these people who who were interviewing you and hiring you say he has the profile to work here we need him because xyz what's the because so i think there's like seven or eight different ones you call tech companies that are in there but really i think it started in in 2016 with like my first big kid job salary benefits it was first consultancy they did what's called human factors ergonomics um they're called Lexent. Shout out to Lexent. They're, they're a wonderful group group of folks. And they were the folks that, that really took a chance on me. And I think you like having your PhD initially is is actually like not a great thing. It's not a good look because you're overeducated. You might be overqualified. They're like, why don't you want to stay and be a professor? Like I know those folks do. And you have no real experience in this role that you're about to apply for. Like none of this makes sense, especially humanities and doubly especially for philosophy, like philosophy to whatever it makes no sense. Computer science to software engineering, obviously, like no, 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 med school to doctor, surgeon, whatever, no, no question, right? Everybody gets that. Even, even like communications to marketing, yeah. like there, that, like that's a thing. There is no like conventional line that's drawn in anyone's head. So you're like, who is this person? Like in any, and I know it's, it sounds cheeky, but like if they had a shitty philosophy professor, the hiring manager, they're probably not going to like call you for an interview. Like, they, like philosophy might be tainted for them, it might make them feel very insecure and, and might make you seem like you are, are like got some ax to grind or something like that. So it works against you. And there's this infinite space between zero and one of like not having the job ever and having your first job. Once you get the first one, everything makes sense. You're like, wait, a company has given you benefits and a salary and has employed you, you've done the work and now you like can go on to do other things, right? Like it, you make sense to people once you've done a job that there are like, you know, LinkedIn posts for and things like that. Right. Um, but until then it doesn't make sense. But then once you've got the job and you've got a few years of experience under your belt, Oh, also he has a PhD in philosophy. I want to talk to this person. Cause like, they're probably a little bit tweaked or there's something else going on there that is like atypical or have sort of an atypical background for that. That's so it works in your favor afterwards, okay. but until then it, it's one of those things you really have to downplay 
you've got to like really chill out on the like being an academic and and you have to really be very humble and search for entry level positions to learn what you're trying to do and not say like look I have my PhD I'm not going to be a uh, uh, like you you got to really like put the ego aside here and say I know nothing about this industry like I'm really interested in it I may have done some like sweat equity type work and here's what I've done but be very honest about that and like go into whatever you can get basically once once you sort of like have figured that stuff out and that that journey is the is a very like uh front loaded one all the work is basically up front after that things make more sense because they're mu- what you're doing is much more because there's proof yeah there's this yeah i see it's someone someone has invested it's all you know it's almost like you know they use tech analogies like when you get your first like big legitimized uh, a pile of money from some venture capitalist, then everybody's like, Oh, okay. That person has invested in them. Like that's, that's something that I think is that's okay. So, now. so you have to kind of figure that out. Yeah. No, it, it makes total sense. But now like uh, changing my question a little bit, what yeah. is it that you were hired? Let's say in that first one, what is it yeah. that you were hired to do and how does it, how did it relate with what you studied? Because I think, one one thing that needs to to be done and i'd love that universities did part of this work is find a common language between the private and the academic and yeah. say okay it says you know he's a doc phd in philosophy but he he's good at this 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 or he's uh, he he would fit well in this position you know there's there's translation that needs to be done and that's i think what you were saying is that in that first one you need to do all that work all that lead work, leg work of translating, interpreting, uh, uh, sketching, and explaining—you need to do all of that. Uh, but what do they? What do they hire you for? Yeah, the, the the first gig. I mean, I can I can go on and on about like how to prepare yourself for that and like getting that that sort of first interview and and like you know setting yourself up to be an in industry as a philosopher. But I think is I think what you're asking more is around the idea of. Um, you know, I, I had to, what I wanted to do is like, okay, it's not just like, okay, this person's super smart because they have graduate degrees and all the people have graduate degrees means they're smart. Therefore we can put a smart person in this role. That wasn't, it wasn't just enough for me to say, um, I'll take anything, which at, at a certain point I would have, and I would, I would have just, I wouldn't have known it at the time, but I would just learn just what it means to be an industry and work on a team. And like what, uh, um, what, what, I didn't even know what the hell Q1 was. I'm like, where, where, what is that? Like, what are, what are like business quarters? None of that. I knew none of that speak. So like learning that, even if it's not the cool, sexy job you want, or you do one of your dreams, you're going to learn all that stuff. And you're going to have had real work experience. Not to say the work you did before was not real in the eyes of industry. Like that's not like real relevant experience. You have to sort of shape that. So what I had to figure out was how do I make, what I'm super passionate about still and how I've been trained a um, like the next opportunity, a natural continuation of what this, what I was doing. Say, all right. So like, if you look, I, I wrote this down in a million different ways. I sort of rehearsed it in my head, tried to figure out kind of like what the elevator pitch would be. And I landed on this, like the fun up for me, again, this is going to be hyper-personal. So it's, it's very tough to generalize, but it was like, okay, I did this phenomenology thing. I studied a lot, like to do it in a very um, generalist sense. I studied a lot about how the way people like interact with objects in the environment. Like phenomenologists talk forever about fucking glass and like what's, what's in the back there and things like that. Sorry, I swear. But like they talk about this stuff for forever. And in, I'm like, wait a minute. When people, I heard about this thing called user experience. I, I, I think we're driving somewhere and, and my wife was like looking up some stuff. She's like, yeah, this is user experience. You do human experience. And I was like, typical, like overconfident white male. I was like, yeah, I, they're going to throw rose petals in my feet because I'm an expert in human experience. They got no idea how much knowledge I can give them. That was obviously not the case and was complete opposite when I, when I really got into it. Um, but there was something about the ways that people interact with um, objects in the environment and the kind of experiences that are generated during that. So you've got like a really hyper-specialized version of that in academia with cognitive science, with neuroscience, cool. In user experience, I made the connection because it was like, how are people interacting with these products, mainly digital products, such that it gives rise to different kinds of experiences? Like, okay, that seems pretty legitimate. I've been fascinated about the ways people interact with objects in the world. Like nobody can discount that. That's not a hot take. And it's it's legitimate. It comes. It's not like I'm trying to like lie about myself. I'm just sort of reframing it and simplifying it in slightly different ways. And to say, okay, so for me, user experience work is very fascinating because it deals with like how people are experiencing one's product and how you can make design changes such that 
it changes the kind of experience that they have, right? So I'm like, wow, cool. Can you really do that? What's involved? Looked at the craft and said, okay, there's some stuff here I got to learn, but nothing like learning the, the PhD. And I went and started doing it myself and started like the sweat equity thing of like asking people about their website or just going in and, and like kind of saying like, hey, I'm really interested in this. Can I do free work for you? Most companies will say, yeah, because I got nothing to lose. Um, built that up. So, okay, I, got a, I dabbled a little bit. And then I was looking for like my first like big kid job. And I think like all of that was helpful. I knew how to interview at that point. I had trained a bunch and um, like kind of had my ducks in a row a little bit. And I was at one of these, I was just hustling. I was going to all these meetups. I was looking for anybody that would listen to me or any opportunity that I could potentially have, especially in user experience work. Cause I was like, okay, this makes the most sense for me. Again, tried a lot of different things and was looking at a lot of different things. And somebody at one of these like really sad meetup groups where everybody's just looking for a job and it's just, it's kind of dark. I started talking about this weird face recognition stuff I had worked on in undergrad because he knew about it. He was like, oh, that's really relevant and good stuff. And he had a bunch of like years of experience in that. He said, okay, I think I can get you an interview with these people. You just have to not do what you just did there. You have to not be an academic. Like you need to work on this a lot more, which is honestly some of the best advice I ever got because like that, that was just what it is. So I went, I got the interview. I had like some folks help me out with like, I rehearsed it like crazy. I went in and I got the job. And like afterwards, like six months, eight months later, I had a good conversation with one of the, um, one of the, the, the co-founders of the company. And I was like, well, how, how, what made you guys take a chance on me? Cause like, I know there were probably other qualified folks, people are different. They're like, look, you had a PhD and so we know you're smart. This sort of made sense. And like, you seem like a pretty affable person and like you had it together and you're really interested in the craft. Um, that, that got you very close. Weirdly, what got me over the line, again, you want to talk about serendipity was because, because of motorcycles, like weirdly enough, because I had been, um, I like ride, rode bikes for a long time. And like, I work on old vintage bikes and like fix them up. And it's just, like a hobby of mine. I really, really enjoy that. And um, they had a usability study coming up where they were trying to do a usability study on motorcycles. You know, there's like an infotainment system kind of on the top. It's super freaking dangerous, but like they, they, they needed somebody like during the usability study, like we had to get people on bikes and move them around and have them do different tasks. Like while they were riding on the, on the road, which was super dangerous. I don't know how we got away with it. But, um, it was, it was a, a really fantastic and amazing study, very memorable because that's very atypical work. But I think what really tipped the scales, because again, I wasn't applying for like a director or senior, whatever old entry level associate level, um, they needed someone to move these big ass bikes, these big bagger yeah. bikes around and no one had the experience to do it. And they didn't want to break them because they're like <laughs> prototype bikes. And I think they're like, well, hell, we can hire them. And if it doesn't work out, like we can always let them go. But we need somebody to move <laughs> these bikes around like next week. And that, that's like, that's what did it. But again, you can't plan for those no. things. It's just like living, like I was very, very fortunate, but that was what like put me over the edge of that zero to one in that case. And similarly, like with the native instruments things, I had done this other stuff. They were like, oh, even if there's more qualified candidates, I know that industry well enough. We're like, they're, they're going to have me as a, as a strong hire. So um, that was that was what kind of pushed things over the edge for me. But you can't you can't really plan for that. It's sad to say you just have to like go out and live and live your life and, and put all these things together in, in ways that sort of make sense to you. Well, and clearly living your life and doing things has somehow helped you, like like you said, by serendipity at, at very, very key moments and conversations. Uh, but one thing that I, that comes out of this, of what you just said to me, is there's two things, uh, and and it's an error that that you can easily do coming out of a PhD, is uh, you know having the reflex of bringing out your CV and your list of publications, which is yeah. a big no-no. From which you know from the time you, you leave the ivory tower, forget forget yeah. about that. Second coming across as the, the you know the smartest pers person in the room can be uh, you shooting yourself in the foot in a lot of these contexts because you need to work in a team first uh, also you know you mentioned the the fact of, of there's an, a lot of unknown from part to part from you know from you the candidate that doesn't know what the private sector is but also from them that doesn't know what a phd in philosophy is and and i think there needs there needs to be some humility that that'll help you know bridge that that gap because uh th like you said the, the fear maybe some bad memory of a philosophy professor or or just the person's uh preconceived idea of what an academic is can already be kind of closing the door on you and if if you come with that attitude well you're just closing it a little bit more but what i what felt what felt interesting was that clearly from what you said 
you feel that it was the human factor that got you a foot in the door in those in those it was who you were what your you know genuine interests were what you had done that was unrelated but <laughs> but that was a passion for you and that ended up the and that came through in in those interviews and that they were able to feel oh this person is actually really interested in this or that this person actually has this these this skill set that is really adapted uh, although we don't really know you know the 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 resume is not perfect well there's this thing that that is key so i feel that and and maybe and not to, to for this end of the the interview maybe we can talk a little bit more on what you did because you mentioned a bunch of times that you practiced that you prepared uh, i wonder um how much of this practice had to do with uh you looking back at your journey and and reshaping not reshaping the story you don't reshaping it but changing the term you know the terminology changing your lingo uh and also finding you know if you know okay if i go, want to go into this industry the type of story they want to hear the type of words they want to hear are this this and this did you do this type of of work of tailoring your presentation even your resume of course but also the way you look back you looked back at your uh, your journey even your academic journey and you told it to the person in front of you yeah i mean as far as like translating that stuff and seeing where where it fit there's there's like two streams of this right one is like the the legit theoretical stuff that's like okay i do this i see this job and it overlaps this much it's not going to be perfect but like there is a legitimate overlap between the skill set i've developed and the stuff that um this job seems to entail. I don't know the industry well enough, but it looks like the very craft has very similar, um, not just ethos, but very similar methods or similar like inquiries and deals with the very similar subject matter. Oh, would they just call it human factors ergonomics in this case? Not to oversimplify it, but like that, that was the name for that, right? Or they call it user experience work or user experience design. So there's that element. And then there's this like weird uh, translation and, and morphing into industry element that like you need to do as a person and your work needs to have this sort of reframing of that. And like that one is, was, was, I could not have done that without my partner. Like she has been in industry forever, like understands corporate. And I, I remember times where I'd be writing an email, uh, like to apply for things. She like would walk by and be like, what is that, that going to that job you're talking about? I was like, yeah, yeah. She's like, that's like three pages. And I'm like, yeah, because I want to talk about da da da. And like, this this argument. And she's like, bro, you're a maniac. That's that's two sentences. I'm like, wait, really? Why? They're not going to understand about it. I was like, if they care and if they're interested, they'll ask you more. You do it the opposite than writing like a philosophy paper or, or writing a paper where you've got all the stuff up front and you've like air, you've got it airtight and you've, you've, you've answered every objection so that you have this is the right thing or this is what's going on. You're having a conversation. And like interviewing is also a form of theater in a way. It's a very weird kind of contrived conversation, but like it's very formulaic. So there's a layer at which like, this is just what it is to get a job in industry. And then there's the like, what specific like role and industry specific things do I need within technology, for example, or within like uh, consulting or any of that sort of stuff. But there is this top layer that I feel is pretty universal. And, it, and, and you, you spoke to it initially is like, look, the CV is not the same thing as a resume. Never the two shall meet. There might be some stuff you can pull, but like there's very different documents. Like it's, it's, it's um, something that we need to sort of get over. And, and I think that uh, those are like, those are the big things in here where I almost had to be like my fair lady into this is how you behave in this way. That's because not only because maybe because I'm, I'm a weirdo philosopher and it like is like not how I was trained, but also because we're, we're no, there were no courses set up for that. There was no talk of like industry, especially in the humanities or at least in philosophy is like the boogeyman yeah. or like, Oh, you're going to go corporate and live in a, live in a, a, a cubicle all your life and never do anything intellectual and you won't be engaged with anything. And like, that is all the most naive nonsense I've ever heard in my life. I thought the same thing too. I thought it was an admission of failure. It's really like, you know, uh, down on myself, really being myself up about it. And, you know, it's, you learn even more. And if anything, and I, I've given like other like presentations about this is it made me a better philosopher working in industry because it's like you do all this high level stuff. And then if I had to say to a product manager or a software engineer or someone that's like owning an entire thing that I'm making a critique of, it's like, all right, cool. What do I tell my team to do? And most philosophers are going to be like dead silence. They're not going to have any practical program that are positive program to it. So it said, okay, if all of this is right, 
you got to do more than wring your hands and you have to put forth a positive program that's actionable. Like it would never fly in industry. You would never just say a bunch of shit and then not have people <laughs> uh, like do something with that information. And I think in, in the quest to apply that stuff and to make real change in the world, that's what makes the value of philosophy even, even more powerful when you can actually apply it. It's not going to be, it's not always going to be immediately practical and immediately sort of pragmatic thing. It can enrich your life in a lot of different ways. But if you want to do this as a job, you're going to have to demonstrate a, like a direct value add from like what you've done and like, like how you can add value to this business, basically. And it's a, it, that in itself is a lot, like a lot of harsh news for someone to hear initially and seems very, uh, you can get very despondent from that, but it's actually makes you a better thinker. Cause like, how could I do this? Like, how would, how would this work? And it should be like a, like a positive challenge that you should explore in like a much more happy kind of inquisitive way, like a curious way, because, Hey, you like, that's, if you've got a PhD in philosophy, you've probably been intellectually curious about yeah. stuff about the world. So that's probably a good transfer over to it. Definitely. Uh, it's, it, it does make, make sense, but that's a big challenge is, uh, is, showing having that proof that here i can i can really add value to your team to your company's mission and the big challenge the the first big one is getting i guess that first chance to contribute in in an organization and uh you said there was some luck and serendipity in in what happened with you um but uh, i i wonder whether now now we're really reaching the end of the interview whether you know if if you I can do the thing of saying, like, if you look at yourself, if you imagine yourself one one or two years before your PhD, what would you do different, knowing what you know today? Is it something that that? Because uh, what I want to, what I and what I want with this is, do you have some practical advice for people in that stage of their life now, and to to have an easier transition into what comes next, and not have that phase of, oh my god. Did I lose? Did I just waste these few years? And am I now just gonna go work at Starbucks? You know, <laughs> what's a nice game plan to start preparing and to line yourself up for some sort of of success? Yeah, what would I tell young undergrad Aaron, who is much more concerned with like DJing and, and music than anything else, and just like hanging out? Um, I would like what I tell myself specifically is like to relax and not be so hard on yourself. Like thing, things are, are going to be okay. You're going to just, you know, explore through life. Like it's, it's okay to not know what's going to happen next and to not have a specific path. Like that should, anything should make you feel like more of an individual and, and just relax, dude. Cause I feel like that's probably, I would spend a lot of time hemming and hawing and really worrying about stuff during, during graduate school. But as far as like general advice or principles I would give to people that, um, Again, I'm going to have a philosophy bent, but I probably will try to extrapolate it a little bit to be more um, more universalized. But if you're thinking about leaving academia, I think there's there's I'll give you three steps in the journey that I think happen, and I'll give you three sort of like tips, right? I think one, it, the journey you've got this first phase of like, should I be leaving academia? Is this something I really want to do? Um, that's going to either happen through like your own. Uh, feelings and like existential uh, uh, wants and needs in, in your life, or it's also going to be like, yo, you've got no job afterwards. How are you going to pay rent? Like it's going to, it's going to, you're going to have to make that decision and you're just going to have to be like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. So if the decision tree goes, yes, I want a job outside of academia. The next, the next phase is, okay, what job, like, what are my options? And, and like, uh, like, what's that going to be looking at what might be relevant looking at what is going to be the most interesting to you and probably the least interesting and starting to hone in on that. And all of that is going to come from, again, more research and study and inquiry. And the sort of like 2.5 of the section is roughly like trying before you buy, going out and doing this work for free, because that's just what you're, you're interested in. What is this like talking to people in those areas, trying to figure out what the day-to-day is like, trying the actual craft. A lot of this work you can do um, kind of on your own, or at least try to simulate it in some, some way. So there's those two. And then it's like getting the job. And this is probably the arguably the easiest or at least the most straightforward one. That's the like training. Do like go to your like, tell me about yourself interview questions. Like what's what equity are you doing to make your portfolio the way it needs to be writing your resume? Because once you figure out what kind of job you want, then it's easier to write the resume. And once you figure out the real connection and have made that decision, it's easier to get to that stuff. Folks want to flip to the third one. And just start writing a resume right away. Like that's not really what you want to be doing initially. You want to like sit down and try to laser focus as much as possible. 
Um, is there some kind of like light training you might need? Cool. Go ahead and get that. You don't need another PhD. I, I promise you probably don't. <laughs> and get things to the sort of like uh, mixtape or, or like album level to say, okay, now I have a thing I can just pass out to any employer. I have like a type five in terms of interviewing. And like, I'm just going to go out and see what's there. And I'm only going to apply to things that I think I have a realistic, an actual realistic uh, uh, opportunity to do. And I'm just going to go out and network and talk to shitloads of people because I'm ready to sort of go out into the this working world now. If you do those, like in reality, you're probably doing a little of all those at the same time, but like, that's the way to think about each one of those buckets. And then as far as like my sort of like parting words or, or, or tips, as far as a few principles, um, the we are brainwashed during our PhDs to think that like I am doing this all to get this specific, specific job, a teaching gig or or something at the university, whatever. Most jobs don't work like that. The next job you have that's not a teaching position, look at it as a gig. I promise you, you will never stay in that one first job. Mm-hmm. I, I know like maybe 005 percent of people that do that, and you'll probably leave the industry. You'll probably leave it, go into a different kind of job role, but like it's just a gig and it's not going to define what you're going to do for the rest of your life. So we often think like, I get this tenure track job, boom, this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life. Kind of, kind of is. That is the exception. Like the rest of the world, working world has a gig. They do a thing, they get paid for it. They go home, they can clock out and like have a the rest of their life to do whatever they want and then just keep things moving along and they're, they're learning, right? So treat it like a gig. It's not your identity. Um, and the second thing is like really more of an empowerment thing is like, you're, you've done things as being a graduate student that you don't even know are going to separate you and make you stronger from other kinds of positions. You are employable um, and you will get a job. Like, like just know that and try to take the edge off a little bit. Um, it's not going to be the one you have for the rest of your life, like I said before. And, and I guarantee you'll probably change things around. But like know that you are employable. It's a matter of like moving these pieces around and, and framing things um, a lot. And, and the sort of like last piece is what I would also have said to Aaron uh, as an undergrad is like, just, just take care of yourself. Like be like, be nice on yourself. It's okay. Just like writing your dissertation at the end of the day, it's not done. So you don't feel like you're done, but maybe you cranked out like 20 pages, right? That's, that's a phenomenal overly productive. I think I ever had a day like that, but at the end of the day, just feel happy about little milestones. Did you get an interview? Cool. Did you finish your resume? Great. Celebrate those victories. Don't just look at it as like, well, I'm still unemployed. And like, there might be other constraints that really make it hard, but like really try to go through those little victories and be playfully curious about it again there's like you know you go back to Nietzsche and these other philosophers about what it is to thrive in 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 the world and like be playfully curious because you've done all this hardcore work it is going to help you and you want in ways you won't even know but like you need to be sort of playfully curious about it and and get a life right like do things outside of academia talk to people who don't live in that same world as you because you might really learn something even if they're not like a foremost expert like what is that person at the entry-level job that um, you might not think is, is amazing or might not be super smart, you're going to learn a shitload from that person. I promise you, you will, because they are going to teach you these things that you never would even thought to look at and, and have these lives outside of it. So again, it doesn't mean if you want a UX research job, you need to start riding motorcycles. It doesn't mean <laughs> you have to be a DJ, right? But th- that's just the things that work for me. If you have hobbies and other things and talk to other people um, in, in industry, you are going to learn infinitely more. And I think even, you know, you go to like Malcolm Gladwell level of sociology of stuff. And it's like the, the jobs and the opportunities and the new big changes that come from people's lives are always like two, two like social levels, like away from it. Like you got your core group of friends and you got a friend of a friend. Mm -hmm. And like, that's where all the like weird magic happens for lack of a better term. I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but like statistically or in the aggregate, that seems to be what happens. And Unless you're pursuing those things, doesn't mean you have to like hustle and have like fake friends and and all that sort of stuff. Be who you are, but like be curious about people outside of your 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 lifestyle or your 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 job or your the thing that you're really interested in because you really will learn a lot. It's true. I, I really love all you said. I love the human aspect as, aspect of what you mentioned. The, the take care of yourself. But I want to go back to, a, to something you mentioned to the fact that you were a DJ and to something you mentioned about a mixtape. And I, I kind of want to sum up like what I'm taking home from this conversation, which I really, really enjoyed. But in, 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 uh, uh, with this, uh, this me- metaphor of preparing, let's say you're an artist, you're a DJ, you're preparing a CD. And first you, you have ideas that you need to experiment on the concept of the album. Uh, and that's going to be finding out what you said. It's, and it's very important. And you mentioned it. And sometimes people don't finding out what you like, but also finding out what you don't like that also defines the final album. 
negative work is important. it is important and so the stuff that's going to stay on the on the cutting on the cutting floor it, it needs to stay there because you decide okay this i don't want it's really, really important make sure you really don't like it though don't just say like oh i'll never become a person that works in a cubicle so i'm never going to apply to those jobs i worked in a cubicle for a while and was like really depressed initially and then it was like I don't really see what the big deal is. This is kind of a good gig and I have a private workspace. <laughs> no, being open-minded is super, super important. Yeah. And, and yeah, being open-minded. And then once you've tried it, then you could commit it to the flames, like get, get it away. Exactly. Yeah, then stage two, if that's done, the, that first part of, of a maquette is done, then, okay, now I have like six tracks that I want on my CD and I'm, I'm going to exactly. start working on them and I'm going to start sharing it, sharing and talking about it with friends or people who can help me make, help me make it better. Could could be people in industry. Could it could be like you just said, having other interests and other people that kind of cross pollinize your your inner world and that make you some you know a better candidate for something that's coming up in the future. That's the, that's the second phase, and I think conversations are super important in that phase. And then phase three is you've done all all that work. You've you've kind of uh, focused onto kind of a, a shorter uh, range. Of of things that interest you, your your album is almost ready, uh, or 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 maybe let's say ready. You have the gold, you know, version, and then you start, which which would be let's say uh, a well practiced pitch of your story plus a, a, a well tailored resume, and then you, you start going to the editors and say, here's my CD, give it a listen, and can you pass? Can you play it on on your channel? And and uh, and I think it's really really interesting because actually. It's it's a great fit for us researchers because it's experimenting, testing, and then getting to the, to the final product. And I really love that that you kind of brought us to this arc, to this journey of of uh, how it went for you. I, I think it's really uh, great that you are giving back and that you're working with the APA uh, to to bring this message to people out there because people are anxious, and I don't want to use the a stronger word like despair but some people are really really uh, in in this in crisis mode at the end of their graduate school uh and of their graduate school journey so i'm super super uh, uh grateful to have had this conversation actually one thing i haven't asked you yet and it's very important if people really enjoyed this conversation and want to reach out to you as i know people on youtube have have something going on here that they can see but can you please share what's the best way to reach out to you aaron um, probably through through LinkedIn is probably the, the easiest way right now. There'll be some other stuff I'm working on, like a toolkit or collection of things that will help, especially philosophers, make that transition and, and working on different kinds of programs and things, which I, I'd be happy to, to to come back and talk about once things are ready for prime time. But for now, LinkedIn, my Instagram's there. That's probably just going to be me like making cocktails and saying <laughs> random stuff. So don't be offended if I don't I don't accept the request there. But LinkedIn be the easiest professional way. Uh, and Instagram's fine too. Um, and that would be, uh, you know, Aaron Kagan in one word for uh, for Instagram. Yeah. Uh, no, for LinkedIn, AK underscore Graham for Instagram. And if you just look for Aaron Kagan PhD, you will find Aaron. Aaron. Just look glasses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this has been great. Uh, I really, really enjoyed this. And uh, I, I do, uh, I do feel <laughs> the pain of of looking at the at the landscape and seeing that there's so many gaps there still to be filled. But the fact that there's people like you out there that you know bit by bit are filling the the gaps where they where they go uh, is is a is a huge plus. And uh, and uh, I think it's a blessing for anyone who's now going through grad school and can, and can take advantage of that. So. Thank you. Having podcasts like this are exactly the kind of forum and outlet to do that. So I'm really, really excited that you that this exists. That's why I reached out. I was like, cool, tell me more about what you're doing. And then you were like, okay, we want to get interviewed. But I, I really value the fact that someone can can now go to these sorts of outlets and learn from learn from people and that you're you're curating all of this for PhDs because of because of this crisis that we all face. And and like I think that, that that's that's awesome work. Thank you. Papa PhD is a labor of love. If you like the show and have found value in it, you can pay it forward by donating to help other people like you hear Papa PhD. Even a $5 one-time donation will be really appreciated. So go to papaphd.com forward slash support to donate or to papaphd.com forward slash Patreon to become a patron. 
Your support will help me cover the cost of hosting, equipment, and other recurring expenses needed to bring you a high-quality show week after week. Thank you for your support. I am David Mendez. See you next week.